How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Will you stand with me? We're going to read from the Word of God. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for everything that you've done for us. You've been so good to us. We thank you for the salvation that we have in your Son. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather today and worship you as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for Brian and Aurora being able to join us. We pray that your hand of blessing and mercy will continue to be upon them and upon their family. We also intercede, Lord, for Lisa Bruns and her family as they mourn uh, the loss of Lisa's mother, God. I pray that you would continue to draw them near to you and minister um, your love and grace to them. We pray, God, for the different people that um, of Lisa's extended family that will be at the funeral and will hear the gospel preached, that you would open their hearts Give them ears to hear um, during that message, Lord. Use your spirit to take the words of your scriptures and apply it. We thank you, Father, that your word is truth, that you are true, though man be a liar. And we ask, God, that your name would be lifted up uh, today, here in our midst, that our fellowship would be sweet um, and pleasing to you, that you uh, would have the aroma of Christ continue to be present in our midst, for you are truly sweet and pleasing. We love you. Amen. All right, I got a question for you all. Has human nature changed in the 2,000 years since Jesus came to the earth? Has human nature changed? <laughs> the way we are born, the, our sinful inclination, who we are as a people, unbelievers, has humanity changed? Is mankind any different than it was back then? Does that help you out? It hasn't changed, has it? And we looked last week, the pagan world didn't practice mercy. In fact, it was seen as a character flaw, not a virtue. But Christianity's influence has affected how people view the less fortunate. And here's the thing. All you have to do, if you want evidence of this, is take any country where Christianity has not been an influence and then compare them to countries where Christianity has been an influence and you'll see a stark difference. It's true. Put it to the test. If you think of even countries like India and Pakistan, where Hinduism uh, pretty much is the reigning religion, um, they follow a caste system, even though it's been outlawed supposedly for about 60 years, they still follow a caste system. The lowest caste, called the Dalit, which translated basically means untouchable. Um, <clears throat> These untouchables, they're forbidden entry to many temples, most schools, even drinking from the same well of water that the higher castes drink from. Uh, their touch 
itself is seen as polluting people. Even sight of some untouchable groups was once held to be polluting. And despite the government's best efforts to try to outrule this, it has not been very successful. Uh, Friends, Christianity makes a difference in a culture. Now, sometimes it takes a while for that difference to permeate the culture. But if you even think of the Roman world, what began as a small seed of Christianity soon grew and spread throughout the Roman world and had an influence, so much so that the Roman world ended up becoming the Holy Roman Empire. This is what happens when believers act as believers. A difference is made. In the coming weeks, you'll hear about some of the works that God is doing across the world and how Christianity is spreading. If you just pay attention to American culture and politics, you can potentially have a kind of a grim view or a negative view or a pessimistic view of where God's at and what he's doing. He's alive in America, and he's working. You might not see it, um, but that might be because of your eyesight, because we might be spiritually blind in some areas. But God is working throughout the nations in incredible ways, and Christianity continues to make a difference. Lives continue to be changed, and God's kingdom is still going forth. Listen, when Christians are Christians, it makes a difference to the culture that God places them in. And when you love the poor, when you take care of the downtrodden, even if people don't like it, they notice it. Now, one of the things I was thinking about today as I was putting this sermon together was you're going to think, as I'm talking about us helping the the trio of of justice with the orphan, the widow, and the the sojourner, we might call him the foreigner, is how today in America there might be many secular organizations that help these people. And I would agree to that. That's true. But those organizations are there. Now, some of them, if you actually trace the history of those organizations, they have Christian roots. Um, But some of those are there because of the influence that Christianity has placed on helping the downtrodden. It has affected the culture enough that, yes, even atheists and unbelievers see some virtue today, not all, but today, in helping those people. That's the influence of Christianity. Again, take Christianity out of the picture, and you can see what the view is for many people in other countries regarding those that are less. And it's negative, and it's hold them at hand's length, if not further. So, we do what we're called to do as believers because God wants us to. And what I want us to look at today is why. Why? Why do we go in service? Or put it another way, why do we help the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner? And the first one is obvious. It's almost the answer you can always give. We're commanded to. In fact, we just read that verse. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Listen, verses like this should make us pause. 
they should make us pause. Because this is a serious verse. John says our attitude towards our brother's needs reveals where we're truly at with the Lord. That's serious stuff. And many of the verses we've been looking at focus on us helping other believers, sisters and brothers in Christ. It's not just limited in scope to believers, though. Look at Galatians chapter 6, and we'll see that. Look at verse 10. It says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then Paul qualifies it. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, it's not limited in scope to just believers. He says especially believers, but we're called to help everyone. Now, again, it brings up the question, why are we commanded to do this? Now, I realize God does not owe us a reason. He doesn't have to explain for anything he commands us to do. He doesn't. Listen, God is God. He can ask us to do anything he wants. And he doesn't have to give us a reason. Now, parents, <clears throat> children can question their parents to death with one simple word. Why? Why? Right? And then you answer, and then why? 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 It's like the unending question. And eventually, parents get to the point where they say, because I said so. Right? Well, it's kind of that way with God. I mean, he can command as his holy will desires. And if we ask, well, why do I have to do this? Again, he's not required to give an answer, but if he wanted to, he could simply reply, because I said so. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but think about this just for a few seconds here. Following God's laws leads to life and joy. And here's the amazing thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God is so gracious and merciful that even if an unbeliever took the biblical commandments and followed them, overall that person would lead a good and prosperous life. Think about that. If someone just even followed the Proverbs, general truths for daily living, right? But they just followed the book of Proverbs, things are going to go going to go well with them. They're not going to be lazy. They're going to be truthful. They're not going to lie. They're going to be a hard worker. On and on and on. General truths that maybe believers, because we've been exposed to it, maybe we've been blessed to grow up in a Christian home, that's just kind of the virtues that have been instilled in us. People, um, not everyone has those virtues. Not everyone grew up in a home where those things were encouraged. Sometimes even the opposite was encouraged. <clears throat> but God is gracious. He sets his laws up to work well with his creation. Okay, so the commands he gives us when we follow him, they work well with the world that he's created. I mean, that kind of makes sense, but it bears us to mention it so we realize, like, if he created the world, if he created the universe, then obviously the things he asks us to do, he's going to make those things go well together. That's why even the unbeliever, if he follows God's laws, things will go well with them. Now, generally, um, theologians call this idea basically common grace. Okay, God has a common grace, not a saving grace, but a common grace 
that he really pours out on every single person. The fact that he doesn't judge a person instantly, the minute they first sin, even maybe the minute they're born, is grace. It's a grace that he extends to all. This is what Jesus is making reference to. I want you to see this in Matthew chapter 5. Turn there with me. Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's the common grace. All right? The crops of the unjust grow. The jobs of the unjust flourish. That's common grace. God gives grace. And, and many of you, if you think about, especially if you got saved later in life, I mean, if you think about the different grace that God poured out upon you before you even trusted in him, I mean, it's pretty amazing. And I can look back, you know, I got saved around 19, but I can look back and see specific times where, I mean, God was just gracious, like super gracious, with horrible decisions I made, even with just blessing me with different things. I mean, and he does that to unbelievers. Why? Because he loved them. So here's the thing. God's commands, when followed, generally lead to good things. But here's what I want to emphasize, and hear this part. You listening? All right, this side's listening, all right? They're going to get it. He commands it. We follow. Why? Ultimately, because we trust him. Think about that for a second. He commands it. We might not understand. We might not understand the reasons. We might not even have reasons. But he commands that we follow. Why? We trust him. We trust that he is good. We trust that he knows best. We trust that he looks out for us. We trust that doing what he commands brings him the greatest glory. So, really, this whole thing that I'm talking about today kind of boils down to a trust issue. He commands, because we trust him, we obey. Even if we don't have all the answers, even if we don't understand, we obey. Another reason we help the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner is because of how we were created. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So mankind, men and women, are created in the image of God. Amen? Listen, it is never said that about any other creature. It's not even slightly hinted at. Not even the angels. Okay? So man and man alone. You got all creation, and then above that you got mankind. 
Okay, even the progress of creation that God uses, you know, you got the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Really, what's the pinnacle of creation? He saves for last. He, he saved the best for last, right? Man and, and woman. The pinnacle of creation. This shows us our place in creation. So important are people to God that to take the life of one of them unjustly means you forfeit your own life. Look at Genesis chapter 9. He says in verse 5, Genesis 9, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And here's his reason. For God made man in his own image. Now listen, people kill animals all the time. In fact, I'm going to be cooking up some beef this afternoon. All right? And I'm thankful for the butcher for doing that for me and giving me some beef. There's not going to be much of an uproar over me tossing that beef on the barbecue this afternoon. All right? You might say no one will give me any beef over it. (laughs) But man is in his own category. All right? Look at Psalm 8. Verse 5 says this. Uh, We better go back to verse 3, sorry. When I look at your heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned him with glory and honor. That is us. That is what God has done for us. Now, if you see an animal like maimed or hurt on the side of the road, you're driving along, right? You see like a deer injured. You don't have any obligation towards that deer, right? You don't have to stop and help that little deer out. But if you saw a person like maimed or hurt on the side of the road, you got an obligation. All right, you got to do something. You have an obligation towards the person. You don't got an obligation towards the animal. <clears throat> I remember a few years ago, I was, I was down uh, at St. Mary's Hospital. My dad had had a stroke. And as I left, I was driving away, and about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile from the hospital, uh, there was this man um, on crutches. And he was like really, really struggling. And there really wasn't any houses anywhere close by that I could see. So I was like, man, where is this guy trying to go? So I swung my car around and I'm like, do you need some help? And sure enough, he needed a ride about 10 miles away. And I was like, how are you going to get there? He's like, I don't know. (laughs) But he started. So anyway... I helped him out. Um, Here's the basic principle. That which is precious to God is precious to us. 
Okay? We revere what God reveres. There's a district, I just heard this the other day. Um, there's a district in northern India where no girl births were officially reported for a three-month span. Why? Because they're taking the girls and murdering them after they're born. Infanticide. Acceptable in parts of India. In effect, a Christian ministry was doing, is doing work there, and one of the people of the village pointed at this elderly lady and said, that, that's the lady there that, that takes all the babies and murders them. So this one lady's job was to murder all the unwanted babies. And every time the parents, sadly, are, are complicit in the act. And they had one lady on, on this podcast I was listening to. They were um, telling about her. Her parents had a daughter. Not this particular daughter, but had a daughter. And they wanted a son. So they discarded the daughter. They murdered her. Then the parents had another daughter. And the parents discarded that girl. Then they had a third one. And a fourth one. And a fifth one. And a sixth one. And a seventh one. Every single time, girls. And an eighth one. And a ninth one. And a tenth one. And eleventh one. Murdered every single one of them. She was the twelfth. And God, in his mercy, spared this girl's life. And the parents didn't murder her. And here she was. This ministry was there helping her out. And she was pregnant and had just given birth to a baby girl. And she decided to keep her. See, the gospel... They need gospel light shown in those regions. They need gospel light shown in those people's hearts. And we can, we can kind of lose track sometimes and think everything's all okay. Of course, we got abortion in our own backyard. So what's the difference, you know, before birth and after birth? There is none. That which is precious to God is precious to us. That's the principle. So that's the second point. We're made in his image. Third, why else should we help the orphan, widow, and foreigner? This is in many ways a stewardship issue. All right, your possessions are not yours. You might possess them, but you truly do not own them. You are a steward that has been given resources to use. Now, anyone that's ever had a mother or father live with them, or you've had to take care of them, maybe they've still lived on their own, but you've had to get involved with the finances and and all that stuff, then you know what it's like to steward resources in that aspect. And you have finances at your disposal that you have to make decisions. Sometimes it's not enough. You have to chip in your own. Sometimes your parents have been blessed and and they have quite a bit. 
and you have to make wise decisions regarding how that money will be spent. It's not your own. That's a pretty clear-cut case. But the truth is, even our own finances are not our own. All right? The Lord is the one who owns it. He's given us stewardship over it. Now, if you're given stewardship over, let's say, a billion dollars, it might be... Um, it might be easy to be a steward over a billion dollars in some ways. I mean, you'd be just handing out money, handing out money left and right, I hope. But you're not over a billion dollars. You're over a much smaller and finite amount. So you have to use wisdom in stewarding the money. How are you going to use it? And here's the thing. Someday, the owner, God... He's going to come back, there's even a parable on it, and say, how would you do stewarding my money? That's what he's going to ask. How would you do? And what if you respond, quite well, good master. And the owner responds, well, in looking over the financial records, it appears you've simply taken care of yourself and your family. You've made sure to enjoy your life, and to make sure you're well taken care of. How is that being a good steward of my entire estate? See, a steward manages the estate the way the master wants it managed. Not according to how the steward would like to live or certain lifestyle the steward wants. The steward thinks of what the master wants. What does the master want? What does he want? Because all of it is the Lord's. Look back in Psalm 8 if you're still there. We stopped at verse 5, but when we pick it up at verse 6, look what it says. You have given him dominion. Talking about mankind. You have given mankind dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. I mean, whose works are they? God's, right? And then look a few chapters later in Psalm 24. Verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. All right, who owns the earth? The Lord. Does he just own the earth, just a little globe floating around the sun? Now, the fullness thereof, right? Not only that, the world and those who dwell therein. All of us, believer and unbeliever. So we're talking about a stewardship issue here. And we have to have a stewardship mindset. I want you to look at this prayer in First Chronicles 29 that David prays. that I think gives us a good emphasis of where our heart needs to be. Verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. 
For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And then notice what he says in verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. I mean, this is King David, right? Mightiest, wealthiest king, maybe after Solomon. But riches, right? And what is he acknowledging? This rich, godly king. Riches and honor come from you. He goes on. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. And then he even makes note in verse 15 what we've been talking about. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. So it's a stewardship mindset. Finally, why do we help the orphan, the widow, the foreigner? Because we were the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. We were helpless, poor, destitute, and God, in his mercy, helped us. Time and time and time again, read through, especially Deuteronomy, but even Exodus, time and time and time and time again, God makes reference to the Israelites and where they came from and what they were. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Over and over again, God will reference to Israel where they came from and remind them of what he did for them. They were the aliens. They were the sojourners. They were the foreigners. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where God has brought you. You know, a lot of times, <clears throat> you want to know who has the most, um, most grace and mercy on, on a drug addict? It's usually a former drug addict. Because they understand where that person's at and what they're going through. And you know who has mercy on an alcoholic, someone who has a drinking problem, is someone who is a former alcoholic, who has conquered that. And you know who should have mercy on fallen, wretched sinners? Someone who is God took a fallen, wretched sinner, you and me, and redeemed. Because we should remember what it's like to be in that fallen, wretched place that we once were. We were in the mud and the muck and the mire, 
And God brought us up out of that. We need to remember where we came from. Listen, how long were the Israelites in the desert? 40 years. It's not a trick question, folks. Listen, God provided manna to the Israelites every single day, didn't he, except on the Sabbath. Every single day. Double the portion the day before the Sabbath. But he provided them the manna, and they were dependent upon him. Think about that. Like he's providing them, literally, daily food. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what Jesus teaches us to pray. And listen, God wasn't up there like wagging his finger. I got to help these people again. Got to make that manna show up. All right? I mean, how, you know, after five years, 10 years, 15, 20, I mean, he's still providing. He didn't get tired of it, he didn't get frustrated with it. And he had to do that. We didn't have to. But he had to do it because of their sin that led them into the wilderness to stay there for 40 years to begin with. So even in the midst of their initial rebellion and the 40 years, God was still gracious to them. He still fed them. He still provided for them. First Peter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Even now, we should still be reminded that we are the foreigners. We're the sojourners. We're the aliens and exiles. This is not our home. This is not where we belong, ultimately. our, Our citizenship, Philippians says, is in heaven. And we're waiting for Jesus to come back and claim his bride and take us with him. This is not our home. But over and over, God reminds his people of who they were and what he's done for them. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. Earlier he's talking about foreigners or sojourners. Now he says, you shall remember that you were a slave, your version might say servant, You were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So God freed them. They owed their freedom to him. They once were slaves. Now they're not. And what does the New Testament do? It draws on that same imagery and talks about us being enslaved to sin. And we're in bondage to sin without Christ. We got the shackles on without Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He sets us free. Amen? So, we were slaves. We are now set free. We're set free from that old life. But you got to remember where you came from. Because a lot of times, look, legalism and Phariseeism and pride usually creeps up because we forget where we came from. We like to think, wow, I made this amazing decision to trust in Jesus all on my own. Like, don't be that stupid, please. All right? 
even depending on what your theology might be, <clears throat> um, God was working greatly in your life to help a fool like you and like me to trust in him. He was working. And <clears throat> for some of you, he had to do a lot of work. All right? Me included. But he set you free. And a lot of times when we're walking around and wagging our finger at someone or getting frustrated or having an attitude about where someone's at or struggling with something, it's, we're forgetting what God's done for us. And we need to take less of the credit and give more of the credit to him. Listen, you can't give God too much of the credit, okay, for what he's done for you. You really can't. You cannot give God too much of the credit. So God's freed you. You were the slave. Now you're not. The Israel were the slave. He brought them out. Listen, Christians have been the first on the scene when disaster strikes, really since the time of Christ. Uh, we could spend much, 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 much time. We're not, but I want to mention a few things. One, <clears throat> one of the early church fathers, Ignatius, he characterized heretics as this. Those who have no regard for love, no care for the widow or the orphan or the oppressed, of the bond or of the free, of the hungry or of the thirsty. That's back in the second century. That's basically his definition of a heretic. Someone who's not really showing to others what God has done for them. Listen to this. In 251, the Bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the Bishop of Antioch in which he mentioned that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. And this was not unusual. In about the year 98, <clears throat> Ignatius, same one I mentioned earlier, he advised Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, to be sure to provide special support for widows. And as one historian said, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services. Now there's two great epidemics that hit the Roman world. Um, in an Easter letter, Dionysius, around 260, is writing that a substantial number of basically his church officers, deacons and elders, and laymen as well, lost their lives while caring for others during this great epidemic. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. 
Then he goes on to describe how the pagans responded to this epidemic. He said the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, even throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. If you obviously assess these claims, the Christians ministered to the sick while the pagans mostly did not. Sadly, large numbers died not directly from the disease, but simply from a lack of hydration and calories because they were tossed aside by their pagan family. So the unbelievers ran one way. The believers ran the other way. And if we want to be scriptural and obey the commands of the Bible, the example we set is to run to the misery, not away from it. Run to the hurting, not to shun them or turn a blind eye to them. The Red Cross, I know you've all heard of it, started by a Christian. Henry Dunnant, born in Switzerland. You know the Red Cross flag, right? It's actually just the Swiss flag, with the colors inverted. He was born in Switzerland. <clears throat> he saw one battle afterwards where I believe about 40,000 people or so were killed, but not all of them were killed. And he walked through that trying to minister to people and was just horrified and wrote uh, an account of what he saw, which was kind of a catalyst for himself and others to actually do something. He was all, also instrumental in passing the Geneva Convention, if you've heard of that, which has certain rights for military members that have been injured. He did that because of his faith. He grew up in a very strong Christian family. If you read his story, parts of it are quite sad. In fact, he got into banking. which doesn't totally make sense that he got into banking because he was having horrible grades in school. But he ended up dropping out of school and couldn't pursue the career he wanted. Got into banking, was kind of a failure there. But yet God used this man who obviously was struggling intellectually to do a great thing for him. Like, if we're willing to be used by God, he will use us. Even more recently, we had the Ebola virus strike in Liberia. And we heard of, there's a, actually a documentary called Facing the Darkness. It's, it's about Samaritan's Purse and how they didn't flee the scene. In fact, they were one of the first on the scene. And it was really through their efforts that finally the U.S. kind of got involved to help out that country. My mom's own mission organization that she served for nine years, the Rafiki organization, also had a village in Liberia. And they stayed at great peril to themselves. They stayed because they didn't want to abandon the orphans that were in their care. Listen, Christians have always set the pace in this area. But it's great to tell stories about Christians out there who have done it, but we need to make sure that we do it, right? It might not be in some great, we're going to start some amazing Red Cross organization, but if God is doing that, we'll be a part of it. But let's start small. Do 
Do not despise the day of small things, the Scriptures say. So let's start here, ministering to others, making sure we're taking care of those that are less fortunate. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said. Great theologian. In a sermon he said this, In many cases we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others, and listen to this, when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. As if our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he is not like to be otherwise relieved, we should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Else how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Though we may not have a superfluity, yet we may be obliged to offer relief to others who are in much greater necessity. As appears by that rule, Luke 3.11, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath food, let him do likewise. Yea, they who are very poor may be obliged to give for the relief of others in much greater distress than they. If there be no other way of relief, those who have the lightest burden are obliged still to take some part of their neighbor's burden to make it the more supportable. A brother may be obliged to help a brother in extremity, though they are both very much in want. The apostle commends the Macedonian Christians that they were liberal to their brethren, though they themselves were in deep poverty, 2 Corinthians 8. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how in great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abundant unto the riches of their liberality. He brings up a very good question. If we're going to bear one another's burdens, we will be burdened. There will be a cost. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a burden, and we wouldn't be told to bear it. So if we're going to do that, there is a cost to it. There's a time cost, but there's a financial cost. There's an emotional toll, and there's a physical toll. But listen, we do it because God commands it. We do it because people are created in his image. That makes them valuable. We do it because we want to be good stewards of what God's given us. And every person in this room is blessed. If you've got a roof over your head, you're blessed. If you know where food's coming tonight, and tomorrow, you're blessed. You got jobs, making five and six figures, you're blessed. God's blessed you and blessed you and blessed you and blessed you. He's poured out his grace. And just as he's poured it out on us, let's be the ones that poured out on others. God has used it time and time and time and time again to open that door for people to hear the gospel and to respond to it in faith. He has used it. Something as, as simple as money. Yes, it can be costly. 
But God uses that. He uses us to minister to people and truly show them the love of Christ so that then they can truly hear about the love of Christ. They can hear the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died for them, that it is through him and him alone that he made a sacrifice for them. And you and you and you and you and you and you, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you do that, then God says, I will redeem you, I will cleanse you, I will adopt you into my family. It comes through trust, having a faith that Jesus' sacrifice was for you and that it was enough. Listen, if you believe in Jesus, it's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing. For you that are saved, think back, if you know it or remember it, the day of your salvation. God's done great, great, great things in you. And let him continue to do it. Let him continue to mold and shape you how he wants you. Let him take the different passages we've looked at. And don't just let it be like a surface thing, all right? You're outside at night, and you feel like a little sting, right? You probably don't even look half the time. You just, like, flick it away, right? It's like a mosquito or something. Don't, be, don't let these verses be like that little annoying mosquito where you feel like the little, the little prick, the little bite, and you just kind of, you know, brush it off, all right? You got to let this this thing penetrate. You got to let it do its work. Let the scriptures come in and do some soul work. All right, let it be uh, life giving and life breathing. Okay, not just on the surface. That's easy to wipe off. But take this and let it affect you on the inside. Let it transform you. Let it walk out what God is showing us that we need to do individually and as a body. Let's pray. Lord, you've done so much for each one of us here. I thank you for that. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, for my own salvation, that you've done a work in us, Lord, that you're continuing it. Lord, let us drink deeply of these scriptures that we've heard about the last few weeks not to easily be brushed off, but to change how we live before you. And you truly are the great owner and master who has blessed us. So let us be good stewards. Let us be wise. Lord, forgive us for areas we've taken advantage of your grace, for areas where we've shaking our finger at at those not doing as well or, or tripping up. Forgive us for having pride. Give us a heart for these three types of people, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, to minister. To minister. To minister aid and to minister your truth. Let us go with the bread and the water to these people that we might be used by you to see new life breathed into them.
for your glory. Amen.